In 1 Peter chapter 5, we find this in verse 6 through 11, where we're going to study this week. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That'd probably be a good spot just to praise him for a moment. Anybody with me on that? Which is really what broke out in, in Peter's heart. He was writing all this stuff. Then by the end of it, he was just like, just going to go ahead and take a praise break here. That's what verse 11 is. It's his way of saying, that's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Yay, God. You win in the end. So do you be all glory forever. Come on. Just right now in your situation, I don't, I don't know everything about what's going on in your life, but I know right now God's doing something that's going to lead to his being praised and him receiving glory and him working all things together in your life. Even before we get any further in the message, I'm just going to tell you, dawn is coming in your trial. Dawn is coming in your life. So to him be... Because that's what you're going to say one day. You're going to look back on your life, and you're going to say, to him be the glory, and to him be the honor forever and ever, and the dominion as well. It's a doxology. And Peter is famous for it. He'll, he'll write a little truth, and he'll just like get up from his desk and be like, ooh, right? Ooh, right? Like, that's good. And so he'd just take a second, have a little personal praise, and it just spills out. As you read this, you cannot help but see an infectious confidence in God's plan, that God is sovereignly in control of even the things that seem crazy, and he's up to something. And so even though it's dark, there's sun that is on the horizon. Dawn is coming. We've said it eight weeks in a row, so we're going to say it right here. Dawn is coming. The sun of righteousness will arise, and there is healing in his wings. So it's always too soon to quit. When my oldest daughter, Olivia, was two years old, she was sitting on a stool in our kitchen. And I was drinking a Coke. She had a sippy cup. And I remember when I opened the Coke, her, uh, her sippy cup lost its luster. Can I say it like that? She had been enjoying it, or at least that's how I remember it. But then I cracked the Coke open, and she looked at, she looked at her sippy cup like it was full of poison and garbage. <laughs> so this thing, I never liked it, never liked this thing. And she just, she just had like a two-year-old can, those like Cyclops, you know, focus on my, on, my, uh, on my Coke. She was just, you know, just mesmerized. I would take a sip. She's like, like, my, like mime drinking it. Like, I choose you, she was saying. And I kind of, I was watching this kind of happen, kind of enjoying it. So I, I needed to get something out of the refrigerator. I remember I was making a coffee and I was going to get the, the milk out, steam up some milk, make her, make her mom a coffee. And, and I went to the, the refrigerator, but kind of realized... I can't leave my Coke here unguarded. So I said to, to my daughter, who was sitting on a stool, she, 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 she sat there and I said, Olivia, don't drink daddy's Coke. 
she's mumbled, you know, kind of a, okay, but just didn't take her eyes off it. And when I, when I went to the fridge uh, and my back was turned, I heard the unmistakable sound. It is a sound, I, I could tell it anywhere. It was the sound of a can scraping across a granite countertop. And, and hearing this and knowing that my daughter was now disobe disobeying a direct order I gave her three seconds ago, I said, Olivia, are, are you drinking dad's Coke? The slurping noises stopped momentarily <laughs> as she was trying to get most of this Coke down as quick as she could. Just, like the gulping stopped. And then after a beat, she goes, no. And then I heard a can being set down on a granite countertop and scraping back across it. At this point, I thought, we're going to be talking today about honesty. That's what we're going to be talking about today. No, she said. So I turn around. And she's sitting there now, mesmerized by her sippy cup, just pretending like this is the, oh, I love this. I've always loved sippy cup. That's what I was drinking. I was drinking, she's just loving the sippy cup. And I said, hey, Livy, which by the way, she's not loving this. Just let me just put this out there for the record. <laughs> she, uh, I said, Livy, do you know what lying means? And she goes, yes. <laughs> lying means roar. <laughs> In the, in the text in front of us, what we've just discovered is that lying means roar. That's, that's really the message today. Because Peter tells us that our adversary is like a lion. And of course, he's a roaring lion. And uh, the text is more intense than just even reading that. Because we think roaring lion, we're like, oh, the lion at the zoo. No, roaring uh, in, this, in this instance actually refers to the growling of a hungry beast. The growling of a, the vicious, savage nature of a, of a, of a ferocious animal who is, who is desperate for food, will do anything to consume. And that's your adversary, the devil. And he's got his eyes on you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dawn is coming. But until it gets here, you've got an enemy who's hunting you, who's bloodthirsty like a shark that's agitated to fury with blood in the water. That's the enemy. That's the enemy of your soul, who is your adversary, who wants to destroy you. And what is his primary method of destruction? Deception. Jesus put it this way in John's gospel. He said, chapter 8, verse 44, the devil's been a murderer right from the start. He never stood with the truth, for he's full of nothing but lies. Lying is his native tongue. He is a master of deception and the father of lies. Lying means roar. To the extent that we believe the lies that the enemy tells, we are opening ourselves up to the destruction that he has planned for us. He's a roaring lion. And his method to get us to the destruction he intends is lying. Why? Because listen to me carefully. He cannot do anything to you without God's permission. So what he tries to get us to do is to believe a lie. So we open the back door and let him in. He can't get in. He can't kick the door down. He'll tell you he, he, he acts a big, you know, bad wolf. But he really can't blow your house down. 
The Bible says he has to ask God's permission to even bring one tiny trial upon you, to damage one hair on your head. In the book of Job, when you look at it, he had to ask to do something. And, and God said, yes, you can do this, but no further. So God sets a limit. God sets a border. God sets a hedge. You are invincible in the will of God. You are immortal until God wants to bring you home. You can have confidence. You can have security. You can, come on, there should be some Holy Ghost swagger up in your strut. Not angels, not demons, not height, not depth. None of these things can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Read you some Romans 8 and see how strong you are. You are indestructible. You have a bulletproof soul. And the enemy knows it. And so that's why he'll try to get you deceived so you unlock the back door. In a very real sense, you are more dangerous to yourself than the devil. Because while he has to ask God's permission to mess with you, you don't have to check with nobody before you make a mess out of your dysfunctional self, right? And neither do I. We are masters of self-sabotage. That's why I wrote a whole book on the subject of winning the war within. But let me talk to you today about the lies specifically that the devil wants to tell you and how truth can set us free. Truth can set us free from deception, and that deception is key to our destruction. So this week, we're going to take some time to look at truth from 1 Peter that will help us to see through the lies that our enemy, the devil, our adversary, the devil, tells about us. Sound good? All right, lie number one is this. You have something to prove. You have something to prove. This is a lie that the, the devil whispers into your ear, so you fall for the sin of pride, the sin of pride. And it's this that's on Peter's mind as we began. That's why in verse 6, he, he called out the truth in the sin of pride by telling us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Pride is what causes us to err. And pride is at the root of just about any sin you could possibly ever imagine. It's the, it's the first sin, right? Pride is the first sin. It's the, it's the sin that the devil fell prey to. Because he was, first of all, an angel. But then he was lifted up with pride. And he got all about himself. And so it's been said, pride was what split heaven and started hell. And he's been infecting our kind with that which was his first problem to begin with ever since. And so pride is, is, is what's at the root, I think, in our culture, oftentimes, of the need to prove ourselves. We've been listening to him prove to us, to tell, us to, uh, tell us into our ear, you need to prove yourself. And that's why we need to, what do we say? I need to make something of myself. I need to look out for, for number one. I need, to, I need to show the world who I am. We're, we're walking around believing a lie that says, you need to prove yourself. Prove that you're enough. Prove that you're a man. Prove that you're beautiful. Prove that you can get a guy. Prove that you can, you can wear this. Prove that you can uh, afford that. Prove it. 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 Because we don't know that we're enough. And we don't know that we're lovely. And we don't know that we're worthy. And we don't know that, that, that we, we, we should ever be accepted. And the enemy is telling us, prove it. You've got to do something in order to be something. This is what he did to Jesus, isn't it? Isn't it Matthew's gospel? He said, he said, if you really are the son of God, if you, if, if you really are, what was he saying? He's saying, prove it. You, you can't be it until you do it. In this case, it was jump off of this high place, throw yourself down. And then, of course, as he, as he went on, he told him, if, if you do this, all the people down below are going to see you, and the angels are going to catch you, and they're all going to think you're the son of God because you did something to prove it. 
but Jesus knew that he didn't have to do anything to be anything. He was something because God declared something. He had just come from the waters of baptism where God said, this is my beloved son. And when you're listening to God's voice, you know that you don't need anybody else to tell you you're something because you know that he has already spoken over your life. You don't have to do anything to prove yourself to anyone. You don't need to go to some college or get some certain job or make some level of pay or sleep with someone or, or drink something. Let me tell you something. You don't need to prove anything to anyone because God already proved his love. He demonstrated his love for you in that while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. He proved his love, so you don't need to prove anything. But the lie he tells us is we need to prove ourselves. And so what do we do when we're trying to prove ourselves to the world? You, we've all been around that person, and we've all been that person who just clearly has a chip on their shoulder and doesn't feel like they're enough. And they're always trying to compensate, always trying to, to, to make themselves to be a big deal. What, is it, what does it feel like? Puffed up, puffed up. But let me tell you something, inflammation is deadly. Yeah. Medical doctor will, your medical doctor will tell you that at your next physical. Almost all causes of death that are non accident related have this in common, inflammation. It's a, it's a factor in stroke. It's a factor in heart disease. It's a factor in cancer. It's something in your body getting puffy. So something being puffed up is deadly. And the same thing is true spiritually. Pride is a barrier to all spiritual progress. When something gets puffed up, when something gets inflamed, it's not working right. And so where we're tr when we live out of a place of lack, where we live out of a place trying to prove to others that we're enough, prove to others that we're a big deal, prove to others that we're wonderful, we end up puffed up and God opposes that. But God gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And in due season, he'll exalt you. When you try and puff yourself up, you try and take for yourself what God wants to give you all along. But a blessing received in the wrong season becomes a burden. Wow. Ask the prodigal son about it. He was supposed to get his father's inheritance. When? When his father died. But he wanted it in a different season. And when he got it in the wrong season, he wasn't ready to handle it. And the same is true for you. I was thinking about Super Mario Brothers this week. And how in uh, level one, verse two, if you went to the top of the game and ran across the game and then jumped down to land on a little thing that took you up, you can go on top of the other thing. And you go down, and you end up here, the warp zone. <laughs> and when you're in the warp zone, you can choose to go straight from level one, two to two, three, or four without having to go through one, two, one, three, one, four, or two, one, two. You could go all the way to the end. But when I first discovered this, it was actually my little brother who told me about it. He stayed home from school one day sick. <laughs> and he figured out this thing. And he was telling us about it. And we got home. We were so excited about it. So you know what I did? I went straight to four. And you know what I wasn't? Ready for it. <laughs> things were coming too fast. And there was too much things coming at me. I needed to go through the difficulty of one, three, and one, four, and two, one, and two, two, and two, three, before I was ready to handle the flying fish coming at me in level four. I'm telling you something. When we try and skip steps, when we try and short circuit the process, when we try and get tomorrow's fruit without today's growth, we always end up carrying a burden we weren't supposed to carry because we're trying to avoid the pit and avoid the prison. And we want to be Joseph going straight to 
the palace, but you can't skip steps without hurting your soul. So humble yourself. Let God exalt you when the time's right. Now, I will warn you, God is not in our time zone. I don't know if you're in Pacific or you're in Mountain or you're in Eastern or you're in, you could be in Europe. You ever get a call from a friend who's traveling overseas who did not take the time to do the math and they're just excited to be abroad? You're like, dude, that's great that you're in Australia, but the rest of us here are not. Right? God's not in your time zone and he's not in mine. So when he says he'll exalt you in due time, that's heaven's time, not our time. Because our time is I want it yesterday. Because I ordered it on Amazon Prime. Where's the drone to deliver it to my house? We're living in an instant gratification culture. But we love a God who's a God of seasons, who's a God of harvest, who's a God of things being planted and sown and forgotten. The only difference between being planted and being buried is whether you're in a graveyard or you're in a garden. And, and our God's a God of the garden. Our God's the God of the season. Our God's the God of sowing and reaping and, and winter and, and harvest. And so we need to get with the rhythms of the seasons and believe that in his sight, we're not forgotten. We're just planted. Yeah. And that he wants us to know we will reap a harvest if we don't lose heart. Yeah. So let's not fall for the lie of pride. Let's listen to Peter, who learned this lesson the hard way. He was the disciple who was told, you're going to deny me. And he said, not me. I'll never, I'll never turn my back on you, Jesus. I know these other fools, they probably will. These guys are the worst. Quite frankly, I've never trusted them. <laughs> Except for Judas. Judas seems like he is switched on. <laughs> That's why they gave him the money. The disciples trusted him the most. But Peter said, not me. I'll never. He puffed, he puffed up his chest. And inflammation was deadly. Had he started out humble, he probably would have been exalted in that moment. But he refused to wear the apron, and so he went to battle without his armor. Wow. That's what verse 5 tells us. That's why we are all supposed to clothe ourselves with humility. Peter says, clothe yourselves one another with humility towards each other. Literally, one translation, or if you take all the words in their original language and, and translate them, it, it could be rendered this way. Don't forget to wear your apron of humility as armor. Now, servants in that day wore aprons. Like at the Last Supper, none of the disciples were willing to wear the apron. Peter refused to wash James's feet. James refused to wash John's feet. John didn't want to wash Bartholomew's feet, but Jesus was willing to wash Judas's feet. Think of it. He took up the apron. He took up what a servant would wear in that moment. Had Peter been willing to jump in and wash the other disciples' feet, had Peter put on the apron, he wouldn't have gone to that battle without his armor. So let's not fall for the lie that, said, the lie that says you have something to prove. Let's, let's keep our apron on and our armor up. Second lie. The second lie is a lie that tell us, tells us you won't make it through this. You won't make it through this. This is the lie called worry, the lie of worry. The enemy gets us to worry about this. And what's this? Imaginary stuff in the future that may or may not happen. You'll never make it through this. And that's why the text tells us, cast all your anxieties and cares upon him because he cares for you. And this is all future-minded. That's what he's talking about. Because anxiety and worries that we have, fears, are all about things out in the future that, listen to me, may or may not happen. Right. 
the majority of the stuff that, 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 that we worry about probably won't ever happen. But we're worried about it. And we get stuck in this loop about it. And I found one of the helpful things to do when, of, of course, uh, I'm on my best moments. I, I immediately take those thoughts captive. And, and, but sometimes they get stuck. I get stuck in the loop. And my loop looks like this. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Shallow breathing. And so sometimes it's good to play it out a little bit. And they go, all right, you, you, what are you worried about? Oh, man, I'm worried that I'm not going to get, I'm going I'm to forget how to preach or I'm going to, no, people aren't going to let me preach anymore. No one's going to come anymore. Everyone's going to leave fresh. Oh, wait, everyone's going to leave fresh there. All 13 locations. What about the guys in prison? They'll probably want to leave, but they, <laughs> they can't. They just won't come anymore to the service. All right, everyone's going to leave the church. All right, Levi. So everyone leaves the church. What about your wife? She's leaving, she leaves the church too. She doesn't like you. Well, if she leaves, I'm going with her. But, but everybody else leaves the church. And this is in my head, right? It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to make sense just to be a worry. All right, so play it out. All right, everyone leaves the church. What will you do? Well, what did you do before there was a Fresh Life Church? You preached to other people. What would you do if everyone left Fresh Life Church? You preached to other people. You get through it. Your identity is not caught up in a ministry. It's caught up in the Messiah. It's caught up in Jesus. All right. They can all leave. You get through it. You, 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 well, I got this other fear about being impaled. Uh, all right. Play it out. You get impaled. What will you do? Either you live or die. But either way, you're good, right? You see what I'm saying? So you just play it out a little bit. Why can't I get through? He wants you stuck up in this little moment of, ha, 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 ha. But play it out for a second. Take your worst fear that may or may not happen, probably won't happen, but what if it does? All right, God's still good. He's still for you. He's still in you. He still's got plans for it. He'll use you. You'll get through it. So, so, so then you take your fear. All right, I'm going to cast it all on him because he cares for me. I was, I was listening to this um, podcast where this, this woman was talking. Her name's Dr. Lori Santos. She went to Harvard, but now teaches at, at Yale. And she was talking about how good we are at adapting based on something I believe God gave us. And that's called uh, psychological, I wrote it down because it's so good, this phrase, psychological immune system. I believe God has given you a psychological immune system. Your body is amazing because God fearfully and wonderfully made you, where if you cut yourself, it's like, OK, I'm cut. Got to heal that. Immediately, your body will set into motion processes to heal itself. Well, she was saying that we have a psychological immune system, too, that immediately begins to fight when something hard happens that's difficult for us to, to accept. And, and what we don't understand is uh, why we have such a cognitive bias. But we have a cognitive bias as we think about the future, and we mistakenly think good things are going to be way better than they really are. And we think bad things are going to be way worse than they really are. And she gives the example of, uh, of, of a trip to Paris and uh, getting surgery on your gums. You know, your gums receive from your teeth, and you have to get gum surgery. Now, as you think about the future, like trip to Paris and gum surgery, like clearly, if we get the choice, we're like, I'm going to Paris, right? Of course. <laughs> but, but she says, what we, what we don't understand is the fact that for almost all of us, that trip to Paris is not going to be as good when it's over as we thought it was. We will think about it and think it's going to be way better and way more romantic, and way more beautiful. And then you get there, and instead of like Lady and the Tramp, is this place smells like the Tramp. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's just reality. 
It's going to be some good moments, but it won't be as good because you have a cognitive bias to mistake, she says, how good something's going to be. So that's when we think about the future. And that's why sometimes we're disillusioned. And the Bible would talk about how it's because we actually crave eternity. And so in this world that's full, full of sin, nothing can actually ever live up to what it's meant to be. And that's because we crave the new world that Jesus is going to usher in at the end of the age. Dawn is coming. Hey. But, um, but then she goes on to say this cognitive bias also skews negative things, and we think it's going to be way worse than it will be. So as we think about the gum disease, we surgery, we, we dread it, dread it, dread it, dread it, dread it. And when you get to it, you're like, that was not nearly as most things in the future that you think are going to be awesome are not going to be as great as you think they are. But most things that are bad that you're dreading, if you actually do have to face them, they will not be as bad as you think they will be. And that's because of the third crazy phrase. We've talked about psychological immune system, cognitive bias. But then she said, we have something called hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation is basically boiled down to this. We are incredible fighters and ultra resilient. God has made us to be ultra resilient, and we're crazy fighters. So we adapt to just about anything. And then she used as, a, as an example uh, the story of J.R. Martinez, a retired uh, veteran from the Army who served our country. Come on, let's thank God for all those who are veterans. It doesn't have to be Veterans Day for us to be thankful. He was injured uh, serving, serving our country and ended up in a Humvee trapped where that was on fire could not get out of any of the doors. And so he sat there in this burning vehicle, and nearly all the skin on his body was burned, except for a tiny, a tiny patch, a little bit of skin. But he says that was the most painful in the coming days and years, the patch of skin that wasn't burned. He said, because what most people don't know is that if you have any skin that's not burnt, that's where they're going to take the skin grass from, which is actually more painful than being a burn victim, the, the skin where they're constantly taking skin grass from it. So he said, I spent nearly all of my 20s in constant mind-numbing pain. Think about that. Almost a whole decade of his life in pain. And I had to write it down because what he said next was so shocking to me. She, she asked him, what do, you, what do you think looking back on that? What would you say about that? And he said, and I quote, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change anything. He said, and I quote, I'm the lucky one. I'm blessed. I'm fortunate. Because he immediately, as soon as he was able to, began pouring himself into serving other people who were injured worse than he was and helping them and encouraging them. And he became such a light. He chose not to be a victim. He was so resilient because that's how God made us to be. When we go through some of these hard things, you go, how could I ever get through that? How could I ever face that? And when he went through it, he goes, I'm not just going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on other people. And he began to be such a blessing. One person said, man, this guy's amazing. He'd be great for a part on the soap opera, uh, All My Children. And there, people were like, man, this guy's so likable. He ended up on Dancing with the Stars, which he went on to win. And then from there, even though he still draws stares and questions and children were like, what's the matter with you and the whole thing? He talks about all of that. He, he eventually wrote a New York Times bestselling book and now travels the country and the world sharing his powerful story. He says, I wouldn't change anything. Why? God gave him a psychological immune system that began fighting. So no matter what is going to come for you in, li in your life, you can cast your cares on God. Because even if you face the worst, I dare you to believe that even there, you'll find 
God working in your life in such a powerful way that you look back on and go, wouldn't change a thing. Not a thing. God does all things well. You have nothing to worry about. Because a lot of what you worry about isn't going to happen. But even if it does, even there, God will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Even if you make your bed in hell, even, God will, even there, God will be with you. And he'll use you there. So we literally have nothing to fear. The lie of worry says you'll never make it through this. This what? This imagined thing that you're worried about. But you don't have to worry about any of it. You can, you can choose to cast it. And I love that he says cast. He doesn't say slide it towards him. Because then you can pull it back. He says throw it. Come on, cast, cast. Come on, where are my fishermen at? Let's, let's cast our cares upon it. Let's get some weights on it. Let's, let's cast Let's just throw the pole in too, y'all. The direct translation of he cares for you, right? Cast your cares on him because he cares for you is cast your cares on him because you are his concern. You are his concern, right? You ever, you ever hear something, this doesn't concern you. You walk up to a conversation, this doesn't concern you. That was what your, kid, your, your, your parents would say to you when you were a kid. This doesn't concern you. Okay, well, all right, just gonna just go over here. Big gulps, huh? All right, cool. If you need me, I'll be here. Just listening from the corner. No, go further. This really doesn't concern you. Like that was that was what we that's what we say to our kids when we're disciplining one of them. The other one just shows up like, hey, what's happening to her? Huh? This this doesn't concern unless you want a spanking too, then you, you better get on out of here. Yeah, we spank our kids. Why? Because we love them. All right, so that'll do great on YouTube. I like the NIRV translation of verse 7. It says, turn all your worries over to him. He cares about you. Yeah. Beloved, you don't need to be concerned because you are his concern. This does concern him, whatever you're facing. The, I wrote it down this way. The things that you face that are titanic and the things that you face that, that are trivial, they both matter to him alike. It doesn't have to be some massive thing. Bring him your trivial thing. Bring him your little thing. He just wants to hear your voice. He's not like, oh, you called about this? Jen and I had this landlord. And uh, I said, can I call you and he, about this thing? And he goes, yeah, yeah, here's my number. I go, oh, is that, your, is that your cell phone? He goes, no, 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 no. That's my home phone. My cell phone's only for emergencies. I was like, for real? <laughs> you, you, you say that out loud? <laughs> only for emergencies? I think sometimes we think prayer is like that. We don't want to tie up the lines because it's only for emergencies. I don't want to pray about some little thing because God's dealing with like big stuff. Let me tell you something. He's concerned about the little stuff. So you just come to him. He's, he's your dad. He wants to hear from you. You could run into his arms. All right. So the lie of worry says you won't make it through this. Third lie, the lie of pain. The lie of pain says God doesn't care about you. The lie of pain says he doesn't care about you. One pastor, and this sometimes it can be how it feels when, when things are really going wrong in our lives. The enemy wants to sneak in as much as we want to believe for a J.R. Martinez kind of story on the other side. We want to believe for a Joseph story on the other side. When we're hurting, sometimes the enemy just kind of sneaks in and he says crazy stuff. I heard one pastor say, when, whenever I'm hurting, I feel like the voice inside of me says, there is no God, and he doesn't care about you. Yeah. You're like, wait, which, which one? Doesn't matter. They're both true. Uh. 
The devil doesn't have to make sense when he's lying. That's the thing. We're, we're far more restricted when it comes to the truth. But because he's just a liar, he can say whatever he wants. And he does. But, but the truth is, God is madly in love with you. We choose to, at times, view our hardships as evidence for God being absent or non-existent. Those are the two things. Does God not care, or is he not there? Does God not care, or is he just not there at all? But instead, we should choose to believe. Here's what I choose to believe about you. God is madly in love with you, and he has an assignment for you. And since those two things are true, then whatever he gave you, it's because he's in love with you and because he has a plan for you. Whatever he gave you, it's because he's in love with you and he has an assignment for you. But, but, but the, the hardship is we get handed stuff sometimes and we don't have anywhere to put it. You ever unloading the dishwasher? And you're like, nope. At a friend's house, maybe? And you're like, where does this go? <laughs> Fork, I know. Plate, I know. But who are you, right? <laughs> who are you? Where, where do you go? And there's, there's sometimes you're like stopped because you don't have any place to put it. That's why we get so frustrated trying to clean out the garage. We come up with stuff like, ah, where do I put this? In life, sometimes God hands us stuff, and we don't have anywhere to put it. What I dare you to believe is if you just be patient, if you don't get in a hurry, and if you don't quit too soon, eventually you come to a moment where you go, ah, now I know why I was given this. Now I know why he handed me this. Now I, now I understand why he sent this to me. It's for this. Just, just don't be in a hurry, because he's in his own time zone. God often gives us strangely wrapped presents. He's a great gift giver. It's his wrapping that's questionable, right? And, and, and what, I, what I want you to believe is that when you get handed something and you don't understand what's going on, just keep peeling back the layers. And the time is going to come when you're going to realize that you were sent into this situation. And this was exactly what you needed to be able to give light to other people who are facing a similar situation. The tension is that we don't often see the connection between what we have and, and what, we're, what we're called to do. But the day will come. I was listening to an interview this week with Evander Holyfield, the only four-time heavyweight champion of the world ever in professional boxing. Here's a photograph of Evander Holyfield. This man, my God, right? Uh, he was talking in the interview about how one of the secrets to his success is it, famously, it's known that he was the first professional boxer to really begin weightlifting. It was thought up until this point that weightlifting would cause a boxer to be unable to be good at what he was doing because it would make them stiff and they needed to be fast and agile. But he realized through a trainer he had, he could be both. If he got through the soreness of boxing and, and continued at it, he could be able to accomplish uh, the strength and grow his physical size and be able to be a heavyweight, but also to be nimble. And in the interview, they said, well, what was the big connection? How do you, you balance that weightlifting with? And he said, well, I added something else. And he goes, the interviewer goes, well, what was the something else? And he said, well, it was ballet. <laughs> it, um, I, sorry, there's some, some static on the line. Because I'm looking at you, and I'm going, you, did you say ballet? Ba is that like code for like kickboxing? No, he's like, no, like ballet. They said, he said, my trainer had this crazy idea to compensate what was happening in the gym by bringing in a 70-year-old ballet teacher. And it was cloak and dagger. No one could know, because it would ruin the street image. You know what I'm saying, <laughs> right? He said, but I did a lot of ballet. Almost, almost every week, I was doing ballet. She even got me to where I could do the splits. Now, when you see that 
that cat, you're not like, you're about to do the splits. You're like, that dude is about to rip someone's face off, right? But it was the tension of something unexpected that gave him the power. You don't, you don't look at ballet and see heavyweight, but that's exactly the same thing why God allowed you to face some of the things that you're facing. You don't see a connection now, but just keep swinging. Come on, get back in the ring. I believe, I believe God's got a knockout punch for you. I'm telling you, you can trust that. It doesn't seem like it will work, but it doesn't need to seem like it will work. It only needs to work. And so the unexpected combination of all the things that you've had to face, of all the experiences you've had, are all there to serve the dreams that God has for you. Don't doubt God's presence. Choose to doubt what you believe about your trial. Believe God for the dawn is coming to happen inside of you. Like when you say something dawned upon me, uh, that, that you'll see things differently. You'll see an unexpected connection. And don't forget in all of this, how you struggle impacts other people. That's why he mentions uh, the Worldwide Brotherhood. He said, as you struggle, don't forget about the Worldwide Brotherhood. I like how uh, another translation puts it. And this is in verse 9. It says, take a decisive stand against the devil and resist his every attack with strong, vigorous faith. For you know, look at this, that your believing brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing the same kind of troubles that you endure. Don't forget in your troubles that there's other people hurting. Now, now, we said last week, and if you were here with us, we talked about how we, we could look at that from one angle and say, hey, if God's got them through it, he can get me through it. But now I want to flip it around and go, you're the person going through it who's going to give hope to other people who face it one day. You're, you're, you're going to be the proof that other people are going to get through their storm. Come on. The way you face your temptation is down the road going to give somebody else motivation. So don't you stop. Because what about the person who one day is going to go, if God could get her through that, if God could get him through that, what could he do through me? Don't forget about your brothers and sisters around the world. I think sometimes we work so hard at being good followers, we forget we're to be leaders too. But I speak over you that you're the head and not the tail. You are a leader and not just a follower. You're from above and not from beneath only. You are destined for impact. So as you think about future generations coming, as you think about little eyes watching you, as you think about your sons and daughters and the other young people, if you're a high schooler, think about the junior high students in this church who are looking to you as the leader. If you're a fifth grader, there are, there are seven-year-olds who are going to come along the ranks. They're going to see how you handle your temptation. They're going to see the stand that you take against peer pressure at your school. You're 50 years old. There's a, there's a whole bunch of people in their 20s in this church who are looking to you. How do you face the temptation of the adversary? Are you believing the lies that he's telling? Don't forget in your troubles about the sisters and the brothers around the world who need your faithfulness today because your integrity is going to blaze a trail of possibility as they face unique temptations in their life. Come on, do you receive it? Say amen. All right, one last lie, and then we're done. The, the, the last lie is the lie I'm calling the lie of prosperity. The lie of prosperity says, you've been through pride, and you've worked through that. You, you went through worry. That was tough. You faced some pain. But now that you've gone through all that, you can relax now. Lying means roar. And there's nothing more sinister than the sneak attack that comes after you've gone through a hard time and you go, dang, I have a break coming my way now. Don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't take vacations, days off. You heard me preach about 
about all that stuff. I think we always got to rest, and that's a really important thing that we do. But I'm talking about the kind of relaxation that lets our spiritual guard down. I'm talking about where we, we, we went through all the hard things, but now we come to the place of verse 10 where we've been restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. That's what he says God wants to do. If that's true, then you're going to eventually come through the storm and be at a good spot. You're not always going to be praying white-knuckle prayers. I'm believing for you to be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. If it's true that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, so therefore we're supposed to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand so that in due season he can exalt us, that means that there's going to come days when we're going to feel like, dang, I've been exalted. What does it feel like to be exalted? You've been recognized. You've been noticed. You've been promoted. You've been given blessings. You've been given favor. You're crushing it at work. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey, let's give you this whole division. Let's give you a promotion. Let's give you a bonus. Now you've been handled, handed your greatest test yet. Because times of blessings have destroyed people that persecution couldn't touch. You're never more vulnerable than in victory. Because if we let the gas off on serving and giving and growing in those seasons, that's when we're capable of being really taken out. And that's why it's so crucial. We always remember the blessings are not just for us. They are for us, but they're also to flow through us and that we're to continue to grow. The disciples were sent out on a ministry assignment and they came back to Jesus super pumped. And they went, Jesus, it went great. We did all this, we did all this, we did all this. And they kind of were, you could tell they were feeling their oats. Like, and they kind of were, they, they had been humble as they went out. But now they came back sort of like, yeah. And they forgot. And Jesus goes, guys, don't be pumped on how good you did. Just be stoked that you're still saved. He was teaching them, go back to start. Go back to level one again. Humble yourself. Because this new test of prosperity brought them back around to the original test of humility. The point is we can never, ever, ever get to a point where we don't need to keep doing the same simple things of walking with Jesus and trusting him and growing him and reading scripture and repenting and serving and putting it all out there again and taking steps of faith again and again and again and again we go until we get to the day when dawn finally comes. Until now, between now and then, we have an adversary. So let's keep our shields up and let's keep our armor on, the apron of humility.